Hi, welcome to The School Run. I'm Jane. And I'm Liv. And we are going to share with you the best conversations we have on our school run. We will invite guests and debate topics that affect and resonate with every generation. We all remember our own school run. So maybe have a think about yours. What do you remember? Hello and welcome to another episode of The School Run. Sorry, I was just having a little bit of a moment there because we've pressed record, but I couldn't see the digits going up. So, you know, we have all these technical difficulties and challenges when we're recording a podcast. Thank you for joining us on another um, episode of The School Run. Today we're joined by um, a really fabulous guest, someone who um, works with my husband, actually, and we've become really good friends over recent years. And he's going to share some of his story and journey and his profession that he does now um how are you feeling about this episode jay uh with jane jane look you see i made mistakes as well it's just very natural very authentic very real olivia how are you feeling about this week's episode i'm very excited she loves it when i make a mistake you're not perfect you did a speech last week and said i did we're not perfect we don't have a script we go with the flow it's very relaxed yes um and we just want people to we don't sugarcoat things we just want to chat in the, in the moment don't. yeah so that's oh, just that? proved yeah. it hasn't it yeah thank you for forgetting my name I appreciate it <laughs> that's no problem at all my darling so for those that haven't listened before we started the pod the school run podcast back in February 2023 it was a brainchild of myself and my then 15 year old daughter she's now 16 just finished her GCSEs and it was about sharing stories realizing that every day is a school day and we can always learn something can't we we can She's giving me a bit of a smile, but she's not giving much away. So today we're joined by James Cruen. James is a husband and proud father of two girls. He's also station manager in the fire service. And as I've already alluded to, a really good friend, um, but much higher ranking boss to my to my husband. So thank you for joining us, James. No problem at all. Thank you for having me. How are you feeling about today? I'm probably a little bit nervous. I've never done anything like this before. I've done um, I've done a couple of sort of media bits through work and I've done a couple of little bits for the fostering service on local radio. Um, but uh, yeah, it's always a little bit different when you come and you're speaking to somebody that you know, and it's going to be obviously a bit of a lengthier chat today than uh, the, the usual sort of stuff that I've done. Yeah, absolutely. But it's nice to get to know. We find that everybody's got a fascinating story and a journey. Anyone you talk to in life has got something really amazing to share, and that's where this has come from, really. So. I feel that it's a really special time to just share a little bit about about you. Fantastic! I'll try not to disappoint. <laughs> I'm sure you won't. So let's 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 crack in first of all with your um, your role at the fire service as a station manager. Obviously, I understand it from my husband's a firefighter and he's out there doing the job. Just tell me a little bit about what your role encompasses. I'm, I'm assuming you've got a fair bit of responsibility. Yeah, um, I'd say my role probably about 95% of the time is being a workplace manager. Uh, so as a station manager, I've currently got three stations that I'm responsible for. So that's four fire engines and uh, and one technical rope unit uh, that have to be available you know, for a variety of different emergencies. So I've got currently... 
somewhere in the region of just over 50 members of staff that I've got direct line management responsibility for. So that takes up a huge chunk of the job is actually just managing those stations and those people. Um, for me, it's very much about looking after those people and getting the best out of them uh, and also making sure that they've got the, the level of support they need to be able to do a, a very, very challenging role in challenging circumstances. Um, the other 5% uh, is, I don't, I don't know where I'm plucking these figures from, by the way, this is just, <laughs> this just what, what, you what, feel. It, what it kind of feels like. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I do still respond to emergency incidents, but whereas your husband and will turn out on a fire engine with the rest of the crew, my job is to turn out, uh, I'll, I'll go to anything that is either four pumps or above, Anything where there's a life risk or anything where we've got either a crew or a watch manager in charge who's in development, who just needs a little bit more support. Um, and my job is really to kind of put a bit of structure around those larger incidents. And I don't get involved in sort of the nuts and bolts of being hands-on fighting fires anymore, which is part of the job that I do really miss um, to some extent. Uh, but it's more about just making sure that we get the incident properly resourced. We uh, would make sure that we've got everything there that we need to be able to achieve the outcome that we want. And then also working very closely with a lot of partners, um, you know, local authorities, other blue light services, just so that we've got that sort of combined response and being able to return communities back to normality as soon as we can do. Yeah, it's a hugely pressurised job. I mean, you know, to turn out, I assume you've got your on call, so you get a beep and, yeah. and suddenly you've got to go. And you, like Ant does, you know, I've stayed at the fire station as a, as a wife where he is at USAR and the, the alarms will go off and off he goes. And I lie there and I think, oh, he's gone. I wonder what he's gone to. You never know what that incident's going to be. And obviously you're called out then to oversee and put some sort of strategy and as you say working partnership with people huge responsibility yeah yeah it is and uh, I think one of the things for me is because I am attached to a pager for probably 70 odd hours a week under normal circumstances so it's not about when you're actually at your place of work and you get an incident but when you're then attached to that at home um you know the first few months that I was doing that, I think was a bit of an eye-opener to my wife because she has never come and stayed on the fire station when uh, when, when I used to work on fire stations. Uh, so it was a bit of uh, a shock to her system as much as anything else, really, when that pager goes off at three o'clock in the morning and you, you look at your, your mobilisation message. Um, for me, living in Leyland, I can respond pretty much anywhere in Lancashire. So when, when you look at it, and it might be person's reported house fire in Burnley or something like that, and you've got to go from being fast asleep to doing what's probably a good kind of 30 minutes drive under blue lights in the middle of the night. So, so yeah, yeah, there's a certain amount of pressure that goes with that. And I suppose young people listening to our podcast, I mean, you think about firefighters, but you don't think of all the levels, do you? Oh, yeah, to me, all my friends... <clears throat> And I said, oh, yeah, my stepdad's a fireman. Like, oh, has he put out fires? And I was like, there's a lot. Everyone just thinks, like, you just go to a fire and just use a horsepower and, like, put it out. But there's so much more, like, when Ant tells us some of, like, the things he's gone to, I'm like, geez, I never thought a firefighter would do that. Like, it's, it's like, scary. Yeah, that's that's the thing in particular with the role that Ant's in, um, because that's very much kind of like a technical rescue uh, role. So... 
the variety of incidents that they yeah. get is probably even more again than you would get on a typical fire station. But yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I think um, the vast majority of the public kind of think firefighter, you turn up to squirt water and you go home. Yeah. <laughs> and they don't realise that there is a much, much greater kind of technical element to it than that and just such a variety of incidents that you can go to. Yeah, I mean, I didn't even, it was like Ant the other week, he was at like a drill. Like it was, and I didn't even know they did drills. I just, and I didn't even know like they slept on the fire station either. I thought, they, you know, they just go home and then they get called out to one and then they just... But he actually sleeps at the fire station and I thought, well, what does he do all day if he's not going to fires? But he's doing like these massive drills with ropes and jumping off buildings and I'm like, wow, that sounds crazy. Yeah. <laughs> but you do, you have this old... Fa- I don't know whether it's an old-fashioned thing or an image that the firemen are sat around a brew table having cakes and brews and then they get called out. But it really, the reality isn't like that, is it? Not anymore, no. Uh, I mean... That's that's probably the way it was once upon a time. Um, but these days, there's so much that we do apart from the operational side of things as well. Um, it's a lot about community work. Um, we spend an awful lot of time trying to educate people and trying to make sure that we can prevent those incidents from happen, happening in the first instance. Um, so there's always something to do. Um, if, if we're not out in schools and in people's homes and in businesses, then we're probably managing some of the high-risk sites that are in our areas. So, you know, if you think somewhere like Chorley, where Ant works, there's a lot of kind of commercial and industrial places that have got different processes going on that can be really, really hazardous that can lead to an incident starting in the first place. But also it's really, really crucial that we've got an idea of what's inside that building before we start sending people into there. Mm. Um, and, and that will take up a, a good chunk of time as well, is going and familiarising yourself with the premises, making sure that we've got pretty much pre-written plans so that we've got an idea of how we're going to tackle that incident. God forbid if, uh, if, if it anything happens. Happen, yeah. It is fascinating. And I know, you know, there's a lot of work that goes on in terms what you touched on it in terms of education, going into schools. I think you go in twice, am I right, in, in primary. So you, do you remember them coming in twice, the fire I do. service? I, all I remember is stop, drop and roll. <laughs> that's what I remember. <laughs> but do you know what? That's, that's fantastic because that's something that you've picked up at a very, very young yeah. age and it just locks in your mind there and it stays there and that's exactly why we do it you know if, if we can go out and we normally see kids in year two and then in year six so the year two session is very much about um having working smoke detectors having a fire plan so that everybody in that house knows that if those smoke detectors go off what they're supposed to be doing and it just gives them a far better chance of actually being able to get out of the building safely prior to us even getting there um the year six session that we do is a little bit more hard hitting because the kids are getting a little bit older. So that will focus around some of the things that have historically caused us problems, uh, like malicious calls. Um, we, we then start looking at road safety because kids are getting to a sort of age there where they're going to be travelling more independently. Statistically, they're more likely to die as a result of a road traffic collision than they are uh, of a house fire. So it's really, really important that we educate these young people how to keep them safe 
keep themselves safe, should I say, um, when they're actually going out onto the roads and they're riding bikes to school or whatever their mode of transport happens to be. And I suppose it's just more for the for the young people listening. When the fire service comes in, you know, the fire engine comes and the firefighters come in, it's quite aspirational and inspirational for those young people. And maybe they sit and listen and take that message much better than they would from a teacher or a head teacher or their parents. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, you walk into a, a, a classroom for year six kids and you get their attention pretty quickly. Whereas, you know, my sister teaches year five and I'm pretty confident that if I was to say to her, do you get the kids' attention the minute you walk into that classroom? She would probably laugh me out of the room. <laughs> so, uh, so, yeah, it does make our life a little bit easier. Um, but similarly, I mean, one of the things that I used to do uh, quite a few years back now outside of my role in the fire service was I used to deliver first aid training. Um, we used to do a lot of paediatric courses. And the thing that we used to find with that, there was myself and another firefighter who used to work together really frequently. And you'd walk in on the first morning and you've got a load of people, you've got teachers, nursery nurses, anybody who works with young children. And you could see straight away that they didn't want to be there. They've been sent on a first aid course. They have to do it as part of their job. And within the first sort of 10, 15 minutes of doing introductions, as soon as you told them that actually our normal, regular jobs is that we're full-time serving firefighters, we train other, people, other firefighters to become qualified trauma technicians, they switch on straight away. And it was great being able to have all of that uh, previous experience where you can really start to bring that to life and you can tell people your stories that relate to the skill that you're trying to teach them at that time. So it's all, I think it's kind of about having the credibility to stand in front of that room and to deliver what you're delivering. Mm. So, yeah, that does make life easier for us when we go to schools. It sure does. And I know that the fire service are very... Um, hot on, on the educational side, and that obviously helps massively in prevention for you having to do what you're trained to do, both as a station manager and as a, a serving firefighter like my husband. So in terms of, you know, the, the key things, I know this time of year, so it, it's, you know, hot spells of weather and water and GCSE students celebrating on mm. fields near water. What what are the things that, what are the dangers, what have we to educate on in, in that kind of sense? Just to educate your your children, your young people, uh, not to go into open water courses. Um, you know, as appealing as it can look, when you've got the first sunny afternoon of that year and the temperature's probably around about sort of 25, 26 degrees, maybe a little bit more if you're lucky, and it's a really hot day and that water can look really, really inviting. But the thing to remember in this country is that Beneath the surface of that water, that water is exactly the same temperature as it is for the other 11 months of the year. Um, you know, sadly, we see it every single year. Uh, we get that spell of good weather. Young people will go into reservoirs, disused quarries, anywhere where there's water that looks inviting to go and jump in. And sadly, uh, not all of them come out alive. Um, I've... I had an experience myself uh, when, when I was a pretty newly qualified firefighter and I worked on water rescue station and we got mobilised to an incident where there was a, a 12-year-old young man, big strapping strong lad for 12. Uh, Could bit, swim, presumably, yeah, had all those skills. Re really athletic, um, by all counts a good swimmer and he'd been jumping in and out of the water and unfortunately just ended up suffering with cold water shock 
went under the water um, and by the time we pulled him out he, he sadly passed away um, it's an incident that will always kind of I don't think I'll ever forget that job for as long as I live um, whilst we were there the father turned up and had to be told that his son had been pronounced dead and that's not something that I would ever want to see any parent ever go through again so it's really really vitally important that we just educate people about the dangers of cold water uh, and just make sure that people know to stay out of it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think that's really interesting because we actually had an assembly on that maybe when I was in year 10 at high school. And I don't think it was a firefighter that came in and taught it. It was, I don't know who it was, maybe someone from the council or something. But all I heard were my friends around me just going, oh, yeah, whatever, like, that doesn't really matter. Like, Because obviously they think, oh, yeah, it doesn't really happen to, like, many people, but actually, like, it's really serious, <laughs> like, not to jump into water. Because, obviously, if it looks hot and it's, like, a hot day, you just think, yeah, it's not going to be that cold, and, like, you think you're a good swimmer, and but still, it's very but it's, I guess it's the temperature of the water that eventually, that sends shock into the body, is it? And, and Yeah, just the, the sheer um, impact of how cold that water is, uh, People can't catch their breath. Your muscles won't work the way they would. If you if you go to swimming baths, chances are that water is probably somewhere around about sort of 27, 28 degrees. So even when you go to a public bath and you get in, you think, flipping out, this is a bit cold. It's actually really not. Mm. Um, you know, it's a world apart from that water that we've got in reservoirs and lakes uh, around the northwest of England, where it's probably only going to be a couple of degrees above freezing. You know, wow. it's, um, it's, it's really shocking, um, no pun intended, as to how badly that can, that can affect Thank people. You. Yeah, absolutely. And is there anything at all, like, say someone got into that difficulty, is there anything that, until the emergency services got there, that is, uh, you know, an action that could be taken? Obviously, they're not going to have silver blankets or all that kind of stuff, but is there a body position that you get into? Is there something that is is helpful in that circumstance? Yeah, I mean, we, we would always recommend that people um, just try and float on their back. Uh, you know, that's something that potentially you can do uh, where you're not relying on your muscle strength and endurance and that sort of thing. So just being able to float on your back and, and try and calm your breathing down. But the safest option is just not to put yourself in that position. In yeah. You just yeah. don't go there. You don't, mm. you don't jump in and do that education. So how... You know, obviously, you're now um, station manager. What? Just explain the ranks within the fire service force. So I would say that Ant is, is a firefighter. That's the first level in, is it? Yeah. When when we recruit new firefighters now, we, uh, we take them on as apprentices. So they do a two-year apprenticeship. Um, so once they've completed their apprenticeship, they're deemed competent firefighters. Um, it then goes from firefighter to crew manager, crew manager to watch manager um there's two it, it gets a little bit confusing there's two ranks within the watch manager rank there's watch manager a then there's watch manager b and in the service that i work for it then jumps straight to station manager b some some services do have a station manager a mm-hmm. rank as well um then it goes to group manager then area manager and then it's your principal offices so again that will depend on on whether you're one of the large metropolitan brigades or whether you're one of the uh, shire services. But uh, in in our service, there's uh, an assistant chief fire officer, there's a deputy chief fire officer, and then there's the chief who's... Above the the whole service. Yeah, the top person. Yeah, incredible. So how did you hear about the fire service and what... How did you get in? 
What what was that journey like? Well, it was it was a bit of a strange one for me uh, because when when I left school, um, I, I sort of didn't really know what I wanted to do with my life, and I had a bit of a failed attempt at college. I, I stayed on at the school that I went to. I went to a local grammar school. Um, I stayed on, did lower sixth, really really badly. Um, got unceremoniously kicked out at the end of lower sixth because my grades weren't, weren't good enough. Um, and it was largely down to a lack of engagement on my part. I wasn't particularly particularly motivated. I then went to um, the, the local college to, to us in Leyland. Um, I did another 12 months there and then that really wasn't panning out either. So I had a year of just bouncing around doing various bits of temporary jobs and then I went back to college and I did a two-year uh, vocational course. And at the end of that, um, I, I then decided in my infinite wisdom that I was going to go and do quantity surveying at university. And the sole motivating factor for me to go and choose such a sort of a, a niche course was because I knew somebody who was a trainee quantity surveyor who was a couple of years older than me and he drove a BMW and he, and he, and he earned 30 grand a year. <laughs> back in those days, 30 grand a year certainly seemed like an awful lot of money. Um, so I think one of the things I'd definitely say to any young person is don't pick your university course based on some, what car somebody drives. <laughs> yeah, you know? absolutely, yeah. Um, or what they're going to earn. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. So... Um, suffice to say, my, my sort of little foray into higher education didn't last very long. I, I did probably all of about a couple of months down at the University of the West of England in Bristol. Um, really wasn't for me. So I came back home and just thought, now what? You know, do I start again? Do I do a different university course come September? Um, and in the meantime, I needed some sort of employment. So I ended up getting a job working for the Halifax. And I worked for, well, at the time it was kind of like a big processing centre. So all, all the kind of like the, the loan applications, mortgage applications, things like that. Um, that was what we did in that building. And there was probably about 150 people working there at the time. And the average age was probably sort of 20 to 25. So a really young sort of workforce. And a lot of the people that I worked with at that time had good degrees from good universities and they were doing the same basic admin role as I was on, I think I was on about 11 grand a year at the time. Wow. So that, for me, sort of made me think, well, what's the point in going back to university? Unless there's something really specific that mm. you want to do at university, something that you're really, really passionate about or something that you have to get to be able to follow your career yeah. plan. So obviously, you know, if you want to... Be a vet or a doctor, yeah. then mm. you're going to need to go to uni. That's yeah. it. You know, if that is your dream, then absolutely you've got to go to university for that. But I was just seeing an awful lot of my friends going off to university just for the sake of going to university and not really with any kind of particular clear idea of what they wanted to do or why they'd chosen the subject, albeit I think most of them had chosen with 
a bit more of an informed choice than me. Mm. But um, but yeah, that kind of put me off going back to university. Um, but equally, I knew that sitting in an office for the next sort of 40 years of my life was not going to be for me either. And it's interesting that, isn't it? Because we've talked before on the podcast about personality styles. Yeah. And I think you've got to be a really analytical, process-driven, yes. administrative type to do that role oh yeah I couldn't sit on a desk all day <laughs> I want to be like out helping people I'm much more of a people person I couldn't be sat at a desk I'd get too bored but we don't get that kind of testing at school or college in terms of what kind of personality type we are and what we're going to suit do we no no and I think uh, to some degree a lot of young people are just left to kind of figure it out for themselves as they go and the reality of that is that can take a very, very long time to do. And the older you get with that, uh, the more you, you might actually be kind of tied into a job that you can't stand going to because by this point you've now got bills to pay, you might have mortgage, you might have children, whatever it is, whatever those financial responsibilities are. Um, and it's, it's a big shout for somebody to say, do you know what, this is really not me, I'm going to jack this job in and I'm going to go and retrain or I'm going to go and follow, you know, something that I'm passionate about. So I think, whereas to some extent you're always going to have to sort of find your own way, I think we can certainly help young people if we were to... If, if we were to start doing that sort of testing at an earlier age and think, okay, it's not necessarily going to tell you this is exactly the job for you, but it might give you some sort of idea of thinking, well, do you know what, actually, like you say, sitting yeah. at the desk for the next yeah. 40 years ain't going to be for mm. me. Um, in really interesting point that you made just then, Liv, when you are saying you want to help people and you're a people yeah. person. So there's a variety of different careers mm. where you can be a people person, you yeah. can rely on your personality, your interpersonal skills, yeah. and loads and loads of different careers where you can help people. Um, you know, the, the career that I've got, the career that Ant's got, are careers where we help people but it doesn't necessarily need to be something as dramatic as putting a breathing apparatus set on your back yeah. and going into a burning building to yeah. help people yeah. there's loads and loads of different ways yeah. to do it um, but at least that starts to form some sort of idea of what kind of thing you might find interesting mm. um, you know there'd be nothing worse than just going to a job because you just have to go there because you just got to pay the bills yeah so you got to the end of the time at, at the Halifax. Well, for you, your time came to an end. And where did that then lead you? Well, for me, uh, again, probably a little bit similar to Liv. Um, I, I can remember saying to my dad when I was trying to find a different job, and I said, I want a job where having a personality is not a handicap. You know, having a personality and being able to talk to people is actually you know, a, a benefit to you and a prerequisite for the job. And, and saw, obviously pushing paperwork and doing forms and the odd phone call, that's not you, is it, in terms of personality-wise, it's just doing a process. Yeah, yeah. And I, I used to routinely get myself in a load of trouble because I'd be bored by half past ten in the morning and <laughs> I'd go for a wander into a different department just to go and <laughs> speak to, to somebody and yeah. chat to somebody else and... Um, you know, it, it must have been to the frustration of my supervisor at the time who just turn around and see an empty space where my desk was instead of me sitting there doing anything productive. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, I started looking at sales roles because I thought, you know, at that age as well, I was, you know, I wanted I wanted to earn some decent money, and I, I was earning, you know, two balloons in a paper hat at the Halifax. So I ended up 
somehow getting into car sales and um, I worked for a variety of different big dealerships. Um, the, the lifespan of a salesperson in, in motor sales back in those days wasn't desperately long, so it was really common for people to kind of move around from dealership to dealership. So I ended up working for a Ford dealership for a time. Um, I ended up working for a motor store in Leyland for a time and then ended up working for uh, for Mercedes. Um, and that was quite quite a nice job at the time. I was in my early 20s. I was driving a brand new Mercedes that got renewed for me every three months. Um, I was earning a good salary. But the thing that I found with the job was in car sales, um, and I hope none of your listeners are car sales. <laughs> this is going to sound really disparaging to them, but um, and I totally don't mean it to, but back in those days, it was such a cutthroat environment that the mark of success in your job was essentially how much you could rip somebody off by, how, uh. how little you could give somebody for the parts exchange, how high a rate of finance you could get them onto, how many different add-ins and extras like tyre insurance, gap insurance, service plans, all of these things that you had to try and sell people that you were targeted on. And it was a high-pressure sales environment. And that just didn't sort of sit with me and my value pers- system. set of values. Yeah, yeah, I would say that. Having known you, like core values that just is not you I think you know being an authentic person Mm. wanting to help wanting the best but being forced by a a system to you know um hit targets in effect Mm. you know targets helping to save lives is one thing that's amazing but targets from that side of things doesn't feel like it fits for you no no it didn't didn't fit for me at all um so so I started to become more and more kind of disengaged with the job. Um, And I'd always had a really keen interest in in health and fitness. And um, I was a qualified fitness instructor. That's where I met my wife. Um, She actually taught on on one of my fitness courses. And um, I I was was doing, uh, working as a fitness instructor and personal trainer in my spare time. And an opportunity came up. My wife was running her own health and fitness centre at that time. And her father was really ill with motor neurone disease. So her attention was really understandably getting pulled away from work and onto uh, to, uh, to what was going on with the father. So we made the decision for me to go and start working with her uh, at the gym. Um, and... There was a lot of that job that I really enjoyed because that was about helping people. It was about, you know, when you've got somebody who has probably never been in a gym any time before in their, their lives, um, a lot of the time we could have people that were that had real health problems because of uh, excess weight. So being able to work with people like that, um, you know, at the gym for people in that position is a really, really intimidating environment. And one of the nice things about the, the gym that we ran together was um, we still bump into people when we're out and about in Leyland today that says, oh, you so love coming to your gym. It was so nice. It was such a friendly atmosphere. So being able to work with people like that and help them to achieve some of their fitness outcomes um, sort of scratched that itch for a little while in terms of being able to help people. Um, but then probably around about 2007, I just suddenly got taken by this idea to join the Territorial Army. 
and I went and joined our local infantry regiment and um, I loved the training. I loved kind of the discipline and the structure about it. It was something that I found that because of my background in health and fitness, I could handle all the physical side of it. Um, and I just enjoyed kind of the camaraderie of it um, and working in that sort of tight-knit little team. And eventually, probably about 12 months later, I ended up leaving the local infantry regiment and I went and joined uh, a military intelligence unit that was based out of Chorley because I don't know whether you're aware or not, but basically for every single uh, every single army unit that there is, there is a territorial version of that, okay. up to and including special forces. You know, there's literally anything you can do in the regular army, you can do uh, in the territorial army. So I've, I've I'm being a little bit. I I don't know whether I understand what the territorial army is different to the army. Is it a a, a voluntary sector of it or what, what? how would you determine the difference between joining the army and joining the territorial army? So people who join the regular army um, join as full-time soldiers and that is their job. That's what they do you know, all of the time apart from when they're on annual leave. Um, they can be deployed anywhere in the world uh, at any time. The territorial army, I'm, I'm not even sure if they still call it the territorial army or the TA for short, um, I think they just call it um, Army Reserves now. Okay. Um, so that is people that do a normal day job and they go and do their training over a course of weekends. Um, they'll then go and do either... I, I went up to Catterick Garrison to go and do my combat infantryman's course um, and that was 17 days training with the, the regular soldiers to sort of try and bridge that skills gap, I suppose, because if you've got somebody who joins a regular army and they do a 16-week full-time course, and then they're in an environment where they're constantly training and, you know, updating and upgrading those skills, they're going to be considerably better than people that just do it... Part-time you know, alongside part-time. their job. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so uh, when, they, when the reservists deploy into a theatre of war, they, at, at that time they would go and do um, three months what they call optag training, which was, again, to sort of bridge that skills gap. So I was really, really enjoying being in the, uh, the military intelligence unit that I was in. And around about that time, um, Iraq and Afghanistan were, were still, you know, there was still a lot going on there. There was, uh, you know, huge kind of British military presence in both of those theatres of war. And an opportunity came up um, to go and be attached to a, a regular unit uh, in Afghanistan. And I thought, I really fancy that. And I came home and I told my wife about it. And strangely, she was far less enthusiastic about it than I was. And I, I say my wife, we weren't married at that time, but we, yeah. we'd been in a relationship for a number of years. We'd been living together. And she more or less said, well, look, if you're going to go off and do six months in Afghanistan, don't expect me to be when you come back. So, so that sort of kiboshed my big plans about going out and serving in Afghanistan. Well, that would have, I suppose, bridged the love of fitness, the love of helping people, also the sort of the mental side of of being part of a a team like that as well. That would have ticked lots of boxes for you at that point. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And um, I can remember sitting in the reception for the gym 
and feeling a little bit disgruntled that I wasn't going off to Afghanistan. And um, at that time, I hadn't even really thought of the fire service. And a member of staff came in to say that they were currently recruiting. It was part of positive action. They, uh, there was a big push to try and get more underrepresented groups into uh, the fire service. And this person had come in and had a stack of posters and said, is there any chance you can put some of those up in your ladies' changing rooms? So I said, yeah, sure, not a problem. So this stack of posters. And this is how long ago this was. This is back in the days when computers had the great big base unit that would sit on the floor. Yeah, yeah. So this stack of posters, I popped it down on top of the base unit and I was doing the work for the rest of the morning and I kept just sort of glancing down and looking at this, this poster and I thought... But do you know what? Maybe that might be something that might give me that opportunity to do something with a real sense of purpose, do something where you're going to be helping people, do something where there's that sort of everything that I was enjoying about being a, a reservist in the army, um, you know, that disciplined organisation, working as part of a tight-knit team, that camaraderie. Helping people. Helping people. Good value system. Yeah, all of those things um, that I, I thought, well, do you know what, that might just kind of do it for me. And the more I thought about it, the more I thought, yeah, I'm, I'm going to put an application in. So I, I applied back end of 2008 and I started my recruits course on the 19th of January 2009. And the uh, rest is history, the I rest, guess. The rest is history. We are just going to interrupt this episode for a few minutes just because we have a life changing offer for you. If you manage to listen to episode 19, Your Style Matters, you will know that we interviewed the managing director of global company, Colour Me Beautiful, Cliff Bashforth. And we are delighted, both Liv and I, to have Colour Me Beautiful as a sponsor of the School Run podcast, helping you to absolutely change your life with colour and look fantastic every time you walk in a room, a party, a business meeting, whatever it is. As we know, every day is a school day and this special offer is for the school run listeners only. You need to ring Colour Me Beautiful and quote the school run to take advantage of it. But Liv, why was it so life-changing for you having this colour analysis done? I mean, it really opened my eyes to how the different colours, depending on how they reflect on your skin, how they can lift your face or not lift your face. And then you get this amazing colour palette with all the different shades of colour um, which you can take into any shop or any time you go shopping and put it up against the piece of clothing so you know that it'll look perfect on you and honestly I've never made a shopping mistake ever again. It actually is cost effective because your whole wardrobe starts to work together. Everything that you pick out goes with each other. There's so many other sort of opportunities you can have with a consultant as well. They can look at your style and your body shape and your makeup and all sorts of things. But the colour analysis is the starting point. And this special offer is for our listeners only. So what you need to do is ring the head office number and you need to quote the school run. So that number is 01772. 750052 or you can email cliff himself cliff c-l-i-f-f 
at cmbdirect.co.uk. That's cliff at cmbdirect.co.uk. Obviously, you can follow um, them on social media. You can see our social media pages to find out more about them or visit their website, colourandbeautiful.co.uk. It is a life-changing experience to have your own personalised colour palette to help you in all areas of your life, business, pleasure, leisure, holidays, um, relaxed sportswear. It's just loungewear. It's just honestly life-changing. So if you want that life-changing experience, go to the show notes. All the details are on there of our sponsor. And as I say, ring Colour Me Beautiful directly, get in touch with Cliff and quote, the school run. Back to the episode. It's interesting because your uncle's just um, thinking about it. It's very actually similar story. My uncle, he he works in a gym, and he, um, I mean, he's absolutely massive. Like he's got, he's honestly looks like a bodybuilder, and he he's always wanted to be a fireman. And he came in the other uh, week with a leaflet and was like, "We're recruiting for the fire service." So he's just signed up and gone round and looked at all the stations and everything, and he's really into being a fireman as well. It's very similar story. Recruitment drive in terms of gyms. Yeah, I mean, I think probably the thing is you're probably always going to find people that can manage the physical side of the job there. Uh, But I've I've been in a really privileged position over the last couple of years in as much as I've been able to sit on the interview panels for, with the exception of our most recent intake, um, all of our uh, intakes for, for new firefighters. Um, and the reason I say that's a, a privileged position is when when you work for an organisation like the one that I do and when you're passionate about what you do, it's really, really important that we bring the right people into that organisation. And again, a lot of that sits around the values of individuals and those values being compatible with our organisational values and the, the values that we have just as small teams of people, that reliance that we have on each other. Um, so, yeah, historically, it, we'd be able to get people who come from gym environments and be pretty confident that they can run those physical, out and yeah. wear breathing apparatus and put big heavy ladders up. And we used to recruit quite heavily from the military and quite heavily from people from trades backgrounds. Um, whereas now what we're really trying to do uh, a lot more is recognise how much that our role has changed over over the last sort of 20 years or so. And it's really important that, yeah, that the operational response is always going to be the most important thing that we do. But a huge part of what we do now is all the things that we talked about earlier on, like the community engagement. Education. Uh, ed- education mm. for people. Um, and also it's... Once upon a time when we'd go out and we'd do community safety visits, it was literally a case of we would go in, we'd stick smoke detector up, we'd give some people some fire survival advice and we'd come away. And now we recognise that it's really, really important. We might be the first pair of boots that's walked across that, uh, that threshold in somebody's home out of all the different partner agencies that we work with. So it's really important now that we have people who can recognise where somebody's vulnerable and recognise where our, our remit might end as a fire service. But actually, do you know what? We've got partners in, um, you know, dementia care that we can that we can 
um, we can refer, refer that, to. that person mm. on to. Um, we can refer on to social services, NHS, local housing. We, uh, there's so many things that we've got to keep an eye open now for, like modern day slavery. You know, are we walking into a premises and is somebody sleeping in a room that's got a lock on the outside of the door that should be setting a few alarm mm. bells ringing for us, you know, in terms of human trafficking, modern day slavery, that sort of thing. Basically, any kind of vulnerability that you can think of, it's really important that we have to connect the dots. Out. Yeah, absolutely, mm-hmm. and know who are the right people to refer that on to. Yeah, I was. I mean, I was just thinking when you're talking about like the the physical side. I guess like the physical can be like you can train it. You know, like you can get stronger, you can get faster. But then someone's morals are kind of already like stuck there. So you like, do you get what I mean? Like physical, physical stuff. Like I don't know. I don't know if I'm making sense. But like, who you are as a person is already kind of like built into you. Whereas the physical stuff can be like can be trained, trained almost. And like, yeah, yeah. But that three sixty thinking, that observational stuff, the yeah, the, that all uh, that maybe will be a natural. And it's like important because obviously, in that job especially, like you've got people's lives that like. It's about people, it's like life and death in that job. Like, it's really important you have, like, the right team, like, around you to, like, save people, basically. Yeah, definitely. And I think it's a really interesting point that you make about um, about people's morals, people's values. Yeah. I don't think they're necessarily set in stone. I, mm. think, I think we can shift them to some degree, but I think it takes an awful lot more and an awful lot longer to change somebody's personal set of values than it does to say, actually, do you know what? Your physical fitness might not be great, but if you spend three months following an exercise programme, we can change that relatively Mm. easily. So long as somebody buys into it and they're they're prepared to put the work in, it's far more difficult even to point out that somebody's values might not be what what you're looking for in the first case, let alone start to change them. Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting what you say. I mean, you know, obviously we've talked about the education going to schools, but like you go into people's homes to fit smoke alarms, these buildings, etc. And you're seeing, you know, all sides of society, aren't you? And yeah. like you say, you know, an older person living on their own that maybe doesn't have any family, hasn't noticed that their memory's going or the but to be able to spot these things, have conversations, people skills to even find out which way you're going to refer or, or deal with that. I mean, you just don't think about it. We think mm. the fire engine turns up, puts the fire out and off they go, but there's so much more to the role. Yeah, absolutely. It's a much, much broader role than it's ever been in the past. Um, and, yeah, really important. That I think the pivotal thing to all of, all of it is you've got to genuinely care about people because... As much as we can teach people what to look out for in different people's homes, it's very easy to be blind to that if you're not actually all that bothered about the person whose home Mm. you're walking into. But if you genuinely care about people, you genuinely want to create positive outcomes for people, then you'll do everything that you can to try and make sure that we leave that person in a better situation than they were when we first walked into their home. And that doesn't matter whether we walk into their home at sort of three o'clock on a sunny afternoon when all is well, or we walk into their home at three o'clock in the morning when there's fire coming out of every window. We're essentially trying to achieve the same thing and just leave them in a better place. Yeah, and the thing I was actually talking to Aunt yesterday and saying, just tell me some of the things that you know, start fires or where you would end up with a surprise visit. You know, you haven't requested a 
a fire alarm or or whatever um you know what what were those things and he was like Jane it's just really simple stuff like don't have your washing machine on and your tumble dryer in the night. Don't go out of the house and candles leave those things around on. The bath. Don't have candles around the plastic bath. You know, in the, we think they're in sort of a metal tea light holder, but actually they can get so hot and melt that bath. And yeah. you know, it's really simple stuff that we can just prevent those emergency things from happening, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. Um, and you know, it's it's a lot of things that people just don't necessarily think about. Um, my wife still gets frustrated at the fact that I, I won't put the uh, put the tumble dryer on at night when we're going to bed. Uh, but when you've been to as many tumble dryer fires as myself and Ant have, um, you, you can see just how quickly and how easily they can start. Um, so it's all the things that I suppose we see on a day-to-day basis that unless you've been really unfortunate and you've had something like that happen in your home, you're just probably not necessarily going to be cited to. Do you know what? I wasn't aware... Like I would before I lived with Aunt, I would have had the washing machine on at night. Mm. Yeah, you know, I wouldn't have closed all the doors before I went to bed. It's took me a lot to adapt to that way of, and I do it now. I do it since our podcast actually, and yeah. so many people remember that episode for that, um, and not going out and leaving those electronic things on. Yeah, yeah, you know, essentially. If something is electrical, it's got the potential to be able to cause, cause a fire. So if it doesn't have to be on, then switch it off. Um, I know that you and I'm in your house are, are sort of mega keen on solar panels and power banks and that sort of thing. So, uh, you know, I'm not sure I'm going to be letting you leave anything switched on that would be switched off. <laughs> no, absolutely, he's watching his app. But, yeah. you know, he, he rings me when I've had a cup of tea. There's been a spike. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> There's been a spike in electricity. <laughs> no, it's true. It's um, true. I was just going to say, I mean, my grandma's house two years ago, like three days before Christmas, set on fire. Like the whole thing, like absolutely. And the only thing was, is that um, my dad, uh, my uncle who's just been signed up to be the fire, he was upstairs on his Xbox. My dad was downstairs and he, the fact, he had kind of like an all an open fire and you could put one of those guards in front yeah but he he decided to walk to his friend's house and didn't put the guard in front and literally just something spat out and went on the rug and everything went up in flames like the christmas tree everything and my uncle heard it on his xbox and he came down but because my dad had walked his car was still in the drive so he thought my dad was still there so I ran back inside to try and save him but obviously he wasn't there and then there were fire, like four fire engines coming and everything and honestly the whole house had to be completely redone and you don't realise but smoke literally gets everywhere and even from the TV melting, there was just strings of plastic on the ceiling and it was like, wow, everything had to go. It was yeah. crazy. It's it's shocking just the level of devastation that you can see in, in a typical house fire. And a lot of the time people don't realise quite how quickly that fire can develop. Um, you know, they'll do things like your uncle did, which is go, I've got time to rush in and just make sure that somebody's out or, you know, go and get me a guinea pig out of its cage upstairs or whatever <laughs> it is. But uh, we, we used to we used to share a video. Um, I think it's probably still doing the rounds somewhere. You can probably find it on, on YouTube. But it's, uh, it's a, a video of a living room fire from the point of first fire to the, the point that we call flashover, which is where the whole room or the compartment, as we call it, becomes fully involved in fire. And 
we used to show that in schools and we'd ask people, how long do you think it's going to take from that first flame to being fully involved in fire? And people would say, oh, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, three minutes. Wow. Three minutes from first flame to that room being fully engulfed. Wow. So that's why the best advice that we give to people is still, if, if you discover a fire, if you can shut a door on it, shut a door on it, but just get yourself out and let us deal with it when we get there. Yeah. Incredible, absolutely incredible. It's been fascinating knowing that, like, yeah. what, what James does in his role, isn't Compared it? And to Anne. Yeah, 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 very different. You worked with him for quite a long time in, in the USAR, didn't you? I think that's when I first met you, yeah. actually. And we went on work stews and things. And, and what I would say about the lads is they're an amazing team. They all really care about people. Yeah. Big family men, you know, they're just about people aren't they and, it, and it's 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 absolutely a fantastic team to work with um you've obviously got two girls you're a foster parent and yeah. yeah that's obviously been a massive journey for you amazing I mean how you it's just incredible like what you've done in, in that realm as well thank you um yeah the, the bizarre thing is that it was it was actually through working for the fire service that we first started talking about fostering and um, that was because it was during my first year in the service and uh, I was based over in East Lancs and I, I suppose I'd led quite a sheltered upbringing in as much as I, I was really fortunate to be brought up in a home with two parents who both had good jobs, both worked in education, um, you know, they live just a, a few minutes down the road from, from where you do. Uh, and they're still there now and um, you, you know I, I grew up in a very comfortable home and I was never really exposed to some of the levels of deprivation and some of the social issues that we've got in, in some of our, our towns in the northwest. and I'd, I'd gone it was probably around about November time of my first year in the job and we'd gone to do a home fire safety check and this woman had come to the door I'm surprised to this day she even made it to the door to be honest because she was obviously a heroin addict had track marks all at both arms um, she just had an old filthy dirty dressing gown on and she let us in and as we as we walked in I could see that there was two tiny little girls that were in there there was one who was about six my niece, um, my niece is nearly 20 now, but she was about that age at that time. And, um, and another little girl who was about two, and the two-year-old didn't have a single stitch of clothing on. It was, it was November time. It was freezing cold. She was visibly dirty to look at. And, um, you, you know, you could see that there was nothing in that house. Everything of any value had been sold, presumably, for uh, feeding the mother's habit. Um, coming away from that, it was a real eye-opener to me. We, we ended up making uh, a safeguarding referral. But it made me realise that there are so many kids out there that would never have the sort of opportunities that I had growing up. Um, or, or that a lot of my friends and colleagues' children had. And I suppose fast forward to a couple of years later, my wife and I were away camping in the Lake District and it was a lovely summer's evening and we're sitting outside the tent and you could see little plumes of smoke coming up from people's barbecues and um, we're, we were on the family field of this campsite 
and there was loads of kids running around the place just having a great time doing all the stuff that we used to do as kids like climbing trees and building dens and all of those great sort of things and we just got talking about saying you know it's a shame that some of the kids that I see day to day in work uh, are never going to have that opportunity they're never going to do anything like this they're never going to see these sorts of places so that just got us kind of talking about fostering and um, it was, we never started fostering out of some need for us to have a family. We started fostering because we felt that we were in a position to do something to be able to, to help kids. Um, so, so we've fostered seven children in total. Wow, I didn't realise that. Yeah, yeah, a variety of different ages, um, a, a variety of different lengths of placement. But our two girls, um, and I do refer to them as our two girls because they've been with us for so long that they are just every bit as much a part of our family as if they were our biological children. Mm-hmm. But they came to us in October 2012 and they were supposed to be staying for two weeks. And they just settled really, really well with us. So we were approached by their social work to say, you know, we've never seen them this settled. They'd had such a turbulent time. They were only four and five years of age. And um, she just said, you know, I know you normally do task-based fostering, but would you consider having them permanently till the end, end of their childhood? Now, obviously, that's not a decision that you take lightly. So we kind of, we walked away and we talked about this for, for quite a period of time. And then we thought, yeah, do you know what, let's, you know, we could really, really make an impact to their lives. Um, so we agreed and um, it was ratified in the April of the following year that mm-hmm. their permanency plan was going to be to stay with us. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've still got a photograph at home of myself and my youngest uh, on the day that that plan was ratified when we went out for a meal to celebrate. Yeah. And I've also got a more recent photograph of the two of us in the same restaurant. Amazing. Um, so, yeah, she's she's now 15 and our eldest is the same age as Liv. She's 16. Yeah. yeah. And in fact, we've just had some fantastic news um, just before I left the house today. Uh, because she, I can't remember whether we've talked about this in the past, um, she'd applied to join the army. Yeah, yeah, we did. Um, there was a bit of a question mark over whether she was going to be able to get in or not because uh, of uh, an issue with her hearing. And um, we've, we've ended up, we've been through such an emotional roller coaster of going back to the doctors and going and trying to see an audiologist. And getting and, all the boxes ticked. Yeah, and then eventually having to find um, an ENT consultant privately to be able to establish all of the information that the army wanted to know. Um, so all of that was sent off last week and then she just got an email this afternoon to say that she now meets the medical standards and she is going to the Army Foundation College in Harrogate in, in September. Oh, that's such an amazing thing. That's just fantastic. What great news. So what are the different... You mentioned something there about being... Um, when you're a foster parent, there's different types of foster parents or fostering that you can do because I'm assuming that the fostering service would always be looking for people. There might be someone listening to this podcast that is interested in fostering and going through the process, but you can have short-term placements. It's all different, is it? Um, It it is, and you don't always know exactly how things are going to pan out, as we found, you know, two-week placement turned into ten and a half years. 
but uh, but that's really unusual for that sort of thing to happen. Um, so you you will get people that will do just emergency placements. So those tend to be the ones where somebody will get a phone call at sort of half past four on a Friday afternoon, saying. These kids have just been removed from their home. We desperately need to find somewhere for them. Have you got a bed for the weekend or have you got a bed for the next week? Just while we sort out um, what's what the longer term plan is going to be for them. Um, then there's task based, which is what we originally sort of set out to do, which is those children are still going through a process. So it may be that they ultimately end up being returned to um, their birth parents. Um, if the birth parents can can work with social services so that they overcome whatever the difficulties have been in their lives to enable them to be able to provide the right level of care for their children. Um, or it might just be that it's going through a legal process until that child can be bridged to adoption or until they go and live with a different family member who's deemed suitable to be able to look after them. Mm-hmm. And then there's permanency. And permanency seems to be something that has dropped off a little bit since we first started fostering. Um, uh, it, it does still exist in some sets of circumstances, but a lot of the time, if if it's a particularly young child and they know that the long-term plan is not going to be for them to go back to birth family, um, then that child would normally probably end up being up for adoption or up for something called um, a special guardianship order or okay. SGO for short. Mm-hmm. So, so it's really, really complex. Um, but I think the one piece of advice that I would give, if any of your listeners are out there and they're thinking, do you know what, actually, potentially we could make a bit of an impact in a young person's life, um, then just just ask some more questions about it. Just contact your local authority. Um, ask to speak to somebody from the fostering and adoption team and, and just get some more information. And I guess you've just got to be brave to have that conversation, haven't you? Because it's... You know, it's not going to happen overnight. But if you don't ask questions, you never know where life could lead and 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 how you could, you know, help impact and and actually fulfil your life too by by doing having that journey. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, you know, there's never anything lost in just finding out a little bit more information. Um, I know that there's been a really big push in in recent years to try and. Uh, trying to promote the idea of uh, fostering older kids, uh, young people, I should refer to them as really. So mm-hmm. uh, people that, who are in their teens, uh, I think a lot of foster carers find that a little bit daunting. Um, no offence to the teenager amongst, <laughs> <laughs> amongst the group today. But, um, but yeah, I, I think a lot of people are put off because they they think, well, you know, a teenage kid is going to be, who's coming from that sort of environment is going to be really, really difficult. They're going to be really, really, really hard work. They're going to come with far more emotional Challenges. baggage. Challenges, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reality is a lot of the time, these young people, they just need a chance. They just need somebody to provide all the things that we would take for granted in what we provide for our, our, our own children and young people. Like knowing that there is going to be a roof over the head, there's going to be some food on the table, there's going to be... Someone to talk to. Somebody to talk to, some clean clothes to put on, you know, being able to sleep in a room that's got clean bedding on and not be worried about who's going to come into your room at mm. what time of the night. Because we all need those basic 
basic needs, don't yeah. we? It's, high, it's Maslow's hierarchy of needs, isn't yeah. it? And it's those fundamental building blocks at, at the bottom that um, for many of us we take for granted, but it's just offering that, really. Yeah, definitely. And, and if, if you can be instrumental in starting to put those fundamental building blocks in place, then that young person has got a chance to, to go and do something with their, their lives, break the cycle, you know, get out of that... Um, that sort of social situation that they've been unfortunate to find themselves in. Absolutely. Well, we always ask a few questions, uh, James, on our podcast. Number one um, being, I know we've touched on what you would w- would tell a young person. I think we've we've gone through that in our in our chat today. But has there been a teacher or a mentor that's been particularly instrumental in your journey? Maybe not a teacher, maybe a mentor or a coach in your later life that that's had an impact. The- there's been a few really at various different stages. Um, I would say that the the one teacher that I remember at school uh, was a lady called Mrs. Sissons, who was my English teacher. And um, she was a very, very good English teacher. And one of the things that I've always been able to take away and that has really served me well in a variety of different environments is the ability to be able to write good quality written English, um, whether that's sending a spiky email to you know, a company that you've had an issue with a product with or whether that's writing an application form or whether that's, whether that's nominating somebody for some sort of recognition because they've done something really, really well. Being able to express yourself really clearly um, and, and write in a way that is persuasive and convincing has, has just been such a benefit to me throughout throughout my career mm. uh, and throughout life in general. Um, so, so yeah, she probably made an impact on my life in that respect. Um, but also, I've been really, really fortunate um, at various different stages of my career in the fire service to have people that have been sort of mentors and role models for me. Um, my watch manager when I was on the well both of my watch managers in different ways because we work across two stations mm-hmm. um, as, as you know on the urban search and rescue team um, but yeah um, one one in particular uh, really believed in me at a point where I didn't believe in myself um, and convinced me that I was good enough to go for Promotion as crew manager, mm. um, and then from crew manager, you know, in quite rapid succession, gone to watch manager, station manager, and then most recently at the beginning of this year, I uh, was successful at the group manager promotion board. So I now sit in what they call the talent pool. So potentially I can act up to the role of group manager at some point in time. Um, but none of that would have started without that one individual believing in me. Seeing something and giving you that, I suppose, that spark of, wow, you could do this. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and then probably um, there's a, a colleague of mine who I um, have worked quite closely with who just inspires me with their work ethic and on days where I have been into work where I thought, do you know what, I'm really struggling to start this piece of work um, or I'm really struggling to find the motivation to do X, Y and Z. I think when you can look at one of your colleagues who is just an absolute 
driving force, force of nature, um, can really kind of encourage you to go, do you know what, I need to have a bit of a chat with myself here and step my game up. Um, but then also I have a group of three colleagues. Um, they will all know who they are if they happen to listen to this podcast, but I'm not going to embarrass them by mentioning them by name. <laughs> um, but uh, as, as, as you know yourself, I had quite a lengthy period of time off work earlier on this year um, due, <coughs> due to my own difficulties with mental health. Mm-hmm. Um, and a particular group of three colleagues, um, and aunt as well, to be fair, uh, were a real great level of support for me. And I think that's maybe one of the things that I love so much about working for the fire service. It's that everything that we talked about earlier about really caring about people, that doesn't just start with the people that we go out and we serve in the wider community. It's about the team. It is absolutely... It's about the lads and the the, the girls and, you know, the the, the team thing around you. It it, it is, and it always sounds a bit cliched when we say that we're, we're, you know, one big fire family, but that is is how it is. 100%. You know, we... I I have people within the fire service that I would have no hesitation of being able to pick the phone up to if I was having my very, very worst day. And equally, I think there's plenty of people out there that know that they could always pick up the phone to me. Um, And it's a level of trust that you just don't get. I don't know whether you get it in other walks of life or other careers, but certainly from what I've felt within Ant's working environment... You, the trust between each of you and the, the, that team thing is just incredible. It really is. Yeah, yeah, we're, we're very, very fortunate to work in the environment that we do. Absolutely, 100%. What have you learned from this episode, Liv? Every day is a school day. One a thing lot. that you've taken away from it. Do you know what? It's really weird, but it's really inspired me to, like, foster children. I don't even know why, but, like, helping, like, children, like... All I want to do, really, everyone knows this, because I say it on every episode, like, just, like, to help people. I think, like, like children, like, is the Having most important impact. Really, that's what you've yeah. taken away. That's interesting. I've learned lots. I don't think I can choose my one thing. But if you are listening, I think it's really good to listen to podcasts, but it's good to just jot down what was the one thing or the two things you took away from this episode um, and then you, it can have an impact on your life going forward. And we always finish, uh, James, with a school one memory. What are you going to share with us? Your so, school one memory or one with your girls? Can I do one of each? Okay, yeah. Yeah. We'll, allow it. we'll allow it, we'll allow it. So my school run memories are how frustrated my mother used to get with me um, when I was about 13 years of age and I was always late for the school bus in the morning, um, usually because I was sneaking off for a crafty cigarette somewhere, um, which, uh, you know... It's not the right thing to be doing. That's not a piece of advice that I'd be giving any young people, but um, my mother used to get so frustrated with me when I would come back to a house that I'd only left sort of 10 minutes earlier, stinking a cigarette smoke and saying, I've missed the bus, can I get a lift? Oh, I bet your mum, when she listens to this, so, is going to remember that. Yeah. So, yeah, suffice to say, she wasn't best impressed on those occasions. But I think the big memory that stands out um, to me for my girls' school run was the very first day, because they, they didn't come from this part of Lancashire. Um, so... For the first several months that they were with us, probably about the first six months, we were up and down the motorway doing quite a lengthy school run. And 
I remember their very first day when they started at primary school near to us, just around the corner from where we live, and how nice it was on that day just being able to walk them around the corner to school. And I can remember they were both so nervous on the way around because you can imagine what it's like being... Oh, trying to meet new building, new people, new teachers, new everything. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, they were so nervous and so scared on, on the way around. And I was just giving them loads and loads of reassurance and telling them, by the time you come out at the end of the day today, you'll be absolutely fine. You'll have met loads of new friends. And sure enough, went round to pick them up and stood outside school waiting for them. And they both came bouncing out of school. They both had a great day. They chatted to loads and loads of different people. Um, so I suppose, I suppose the message from that for me is that we should never be too scared about trying something new and different. Because a lot of the time, I think the the anticipation of how scary or how daunting it's going to be is far worse than the actual reality of doing it. Um, I think a good piece of advice, I can't remember where I read this, um, but I remember reading a quote where it's saying that if something excites you and scares you in equal proportion, then it probably means you should do it. That's a really good point to end on. Thank you for joining us on our school run, and I hope you've enjoyed that episode. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the School Run podcast. If this is your first time listening, please go back and maybe listen to a few other episodes that we've previously recorded. There's lots of interesting topics, people's different roles and careers. We're sharing all of these stories to inspire and empower young people. That's our reason why. You don't have to have it all figured out at school. My co-host Liv is my 15-year-old daughter and I just keep telling her that school is just a small chapter of of life and there's so much out there if you just say yes to those opportunities. You don't have to have it figured out at school. We're privileged to be having these conversations and we're really thankful to our guests for coming on. Please would you hit the follow button on the podcast channel that you're listening to us on. This will really help us to grow and improve the podcast long term. It'd be lovely if you could write us a review on the podcast that you listen to us on and maybe give us a star rating. Lots of people have already bought us a virtual coffee so that we can have some chats and plan the content going forward. The link is www.buymeacoffee.com forward slash the school run www.buymeacoffee.com forward slash the school run. And as Liv has already told you in the middle of this episode, we do have an Instagram, the school run underscore official, and we also have a LinkedIn showcase page. Would you just share this podcast if you've enjoyed it with one other person today? That would really help us. Thank you so much. Don't forget to click that follow button and we'll see you again next Monday at 6am. 